You mean to tell me there's 49 other episodes of this drivel? Hey, I'm just as surprised as you are. This is the Veteran Wargamer. episode episode 50 i am taking questions from you the listener it's a q a episode um some of my other hobby podcast heroes have done similar so i figured what the heck maybe you'd like to learn a little bit more about me pose some interesting questions and see how that goes so um anybody that's listened to the show more than two or three minutes knows that uh, I like to listen to myself talk, so I figured, what the hey, let's give it a shot. So, I asked on Twitter and on Facebook for you, the listener, to submit your questions, and I got about 33 of them, so we're going to go ahead and get cracking, and I may be taking breaks periodically, but thanks to the magic of computer recording and editing, you're not going to have to endure those breaks. Okay, so first, Dave on Twitter, at DMCFFD, asks, how do you go about hobby project planning? Um, that's an interesting question. I, I don't plan projects as much as I should or as thoroughly as I should. I just kind of jump in. If something interests me, I'll start buying stuff. I... I'll figure out what it is I need to get for a bare minimum, and then I'll start adding in additional stuff. Um, you know, case in point is like the uh, Commands and Colors Fantasy uh, project I'm working on. Uh, I've just been adding units here and there, and as as things occur to me to pick up, I mean, there's no real rhyme or reason to a lot of the purchases that I'm making, just... You know, ooh, I want more lands next, or you know, I want to get some more undead. It's, it's not a. There's not a whole lot of planning going on there. Um, yeah, I. You know, I, I get these ideas about okay, if I well, part of that is also I I don't play games that have a points list so much, so I'll just go ahead and buy models that I like and. I'll figure out a way to make it work within a within an army list later. So yeah. Um, the the other problem is I genuinely don't follow projects through as far as I should. So maybe maybe that's something I need to take a look at. I I had that episode with uh, Simon Tonkus about project planning, and I've got these great ideas about following through on that. But yeah, we'll see. Okay, David also, David sent in a number of questions, so we're going to keep cracking on. What size game do you like the most in a miniatures game? Skirmish on up. Um, man, that's, again, that's something that I'm all over the place on. I like 28 mil, I like 15 mil, I like 6 mil, I like 3 mil. You know, I like, I, at the time I'm recording, I just finished playing a game of Gangs of Rome with my brother Chris. We had five figures each. But then again, I, I like the spectacle of, of large figure count games as well, you know. Um, so what size game do I like the most? Yes. <laughs> I, like, I like all sizes of miniatures game. 
Um, I mean, there's certain appeal. It, it just depends on how the mood strikes me, you know? Uh, and again, it's one of those things where I should be following through on projects more. And I guess if I did follow through on more projects, I could, I could be a little bit more specific in my answer, I guess. But that's, yeah, that's hard to say. What's your favorite paint brand and brushes brand? Um, I like GW paints an awful lot just simply because um, I've become a fan of Duncan and Peachy with their how to paint videos. Um, I do like Vallejo also, don't get me wrong. Um, I've, I started, the first acrylic paints I ever had were the Tamiya acrylic paints and I've actually bought a few more recently. I really like those a lot. Um, I'm kind of all over the place. So I've got, I got a paint station for Christmas and it's got inserts or cutouts, whatever term you want to use for both the Vallejo dropper bottles and the GW paint pots. So yeah, both, most of those for the most part, um, brushes brand. I, I just buy cheap brushes. I'm not a very good painter, so I don't worry about very good materials i probably need to be a little bit more cognizant of that because i'm tired of using crappy brushes so i have heard that if you use a decent brush you will immediately start improving so i'll, I'll give it a shot if money was no object what historical period would you start from scratch and in what scale um that's i've just got so many different i've just got so many different interests that are just so all over the place um, and, and you can really, you can really approach this question from a number of different, a number of different, uh, aspects. You know, when you say money was no object, are we talking simply buying figures? Are we talking about paying someone to assemble and paint them? I mean, really, you know, for me, a lot of the enjoyment is playing the game granted. So I'd love, I would love to just be able to sit down and start playing something and go for it. Um, gosh, that's, that's a genuinely tough question for me because I've gotten into so much stuff and I've got quite a bit of stuff here. I, uh, what scale, what era, what scale? Um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit wishy-washy on this. Um, if you've ever gone to recruits the last oh probably four or five years a guy by the name of chris clucky we've i've talked about him on the show before does a spectacular fridge and indian war setup every year in with 54 millimeter figures and he buys them painted and he's and these figures run 45 to 60 dollars a piece retail painted and then he goes on and, and adds additional paint and touches up and adds additional levels of uh, shading and highlighting to really make them look gorgeous. I don't think I'd want to do something like that, though. Um, I would probably want something really spectacular. Um, I'm thinking I love I love six mil. You know, and how cool. How cool would, and again, people are going to be tired of hearing this this game, but Commands and Colors Ancients, or even better, Commands and Colors Napoleonics with 6-inch hexes and 
units that are just about filling the hex, or at least from side to side of the hex. So six inch wide units, I'm thinking, you know, two or three ranks, depending on what's appropriate for the army. You know, six inches, that's what, uh, 150 millimeters, so that's seven strips across of, so that'd be seven times eight, 56 figure frontage, so if you're talking two ranks, <laughs> you know, 112 figure unit, you know, how about that, bam, six mil, or, you know, hey, ancients, you know, if you're doing something else with ancients, that's... I don't know. I, I don't want to sit down and do the math. This is kind of what I... To go back to your first question, David, I mean, this this is one of these things where, you know, I, I get an idea and I've got to put some pencil and paper to it and figure out if it's even feasible. But anyway, I'm, I'm rambling at this point. What historical period would I start, start from scratch in what scale? Okay, I'll say it. Ancients, six mil. Bam. There you go. Um, what battlefields or museums are on your top five to visit? Um, I saw the question. I probably should. I saw the question earlier. Of course, I probably should have typed out my response a little bit because I'm probably going to be all over the place. Um, now, are we? I, I guess we could look at this two ways: top five that I haven't visited, or top five that I have visited. Um, for the top five to visit um, that I have visited, for the most part, they're going to be in the United States because I haven't, you know, <laughs> this is this is really interesting because there's a couple different ways you can answer this. The museum at Gettysburg is pretty spectacular. Um... But I gotta say, just up the road in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, is a really good Civil War museum. Um, I forget the name of it off the top of my head right now. So we'll we'll call that one. Um, Smithsonian Air and Space. I mean, there's if you like aircraft and spacecraft, that's the one you have to go to if you're in D.C. It's really spectacular as well. Um, you know, if you backtracking a little bit, if you're at the Gettysburg Museum, of course you're going to be at the Gettysburg Battlefield. Um, let's see. For battlefields, I also like uh, Fort Donelson because it's so compact and it's such a compelling story. Um, we did our staff ride. The OCS uh, class did their staff ride there uh, this past um, November and the candidates really did a great job with it. Uh, it. It's just a really interesting battle. You know, it's Grant's first major victory. You know, what's not to like? Um, let's see, what are the battlefields? Um, Chickamauga is great. Um, the problem with Chickamauga is so much of it's been taken over by... Uh, by urban expansion. That's one of the interesting things about Fort Donelson is you get an appreciation for how the battlefield enveloped the town of Dover, Tennessee, and how Dover, Tennessee enveloped the fort. Um, because, you know, during the time of the battle, there the battlefield was the town and the town was the battlefield. The fort was the 
you know, the fort was in the town and the town was in the fort. So that's that's an interesting dichotomy to to see. Um, back in the day, the Special Forces Museum at Fort Bragg, and I'm talking like 94, 95 when I first got to Bragg, was pretty pretty interesting. Um, am I off? Am I past five at this point? If we're talking five that I want to visit, we're talking Imperial War Museum uh, in London, uh, Les Invalides in France, the Bovington Tank Museum, of course, the Russian one in Moscow, one more museum, I guess. Uh, I'd like to go back to the Infantry, Infantry Museum at Fort Benning. I haven't been there in a long time, so bam. Five museums, five battlefields I want to visit. Oh, Waterloo, of course. Um, if there's if there's much to see at Zama, I'm, I I need to take a look and see if there's anything really to see at Zama. You know, uh, let's see what else. I going to Russia is not on the top of my list at the moment, but I would like to see. Uh, Prohorovka, you know, as part of the curse campaign. I'd like to go to the Philippines and see where my unit fought in the early part of 45, the, where the 130th Infantry under the 33rd Infantry Division um, fought in the early part of 1945. So, anyway, okay. Uh, moving right along, I've prattled way too long on that. Uh, do you prefer buying or building your own terrain? Yes. Um, it depends... Um, I, I, I would like to do more hobbying. I've, I'm doing better this year than I, than I have in a number of years. Um, but it just depends on, on what it is that we're talking about. Um, I, like I mentioned, I had a game of Gangs of Rome earlier tonight. Due to the relatively simple construction of the buildings, um, I can see myself doing, doing quite a few buildings for that. So I'm going to look look into that here in the near future. Do you collect anything besides games and miniatures? Well, I've, I've kind of started a military insignia. You know, patches and rank badges and uh, branch of arms badges uh, from various militaries. Um, you know, I've got stuff. Uh, listener Scott Driscoll sent me a bunch of Australian stuff, which I really appreciate. Um, I've got a bunch of Slovenian, Spanish, Italian, uh, German. Uh, I had a couple of commemorative pins from the Soviet Army. I don't know where they are, but, uh, um, you know, and of course, not one to brag, but I'm going to brag. You know, I've got a pretty nifty collection of, of uh, flair, as we call it on my on my current uniform, so I guess that counts too. Moving on to Conrad Kinch, uh, via Twitter, aquest, at Aquesting Vol. Um, Conrad asks, when you're using a published scenario, what is the bare minimum you're looking for? Um, that's, that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't have to have a real in-depth order of battle for, uh, for a game or scenario. I like scenarios that are a little bit more general in their approach. Um, I like scenarios that apply to multiple eras or multiple theaters, I guess. 
um, telling me the type of force that's needed, not not necessarily the exact forces. Uh, give me a good rundown of what the terrain should be like. It doesn't. I don't even have to have a, a map saying, okay, put this rock here, and there needs to be a little bridge, but it has to be a covered bridge, and it would be nice if it were red, but if it's green, that's okay too. Um, you know, and there's a building here, and it's only got two stories. It's not a three-story building. Uh, it doesn't have to be real specific on terrain, uh, above and beyond, you know, Tell me it's gently rolling hills with some scattered woods and a river running through it. And it's fordable at a few points. You know, that's that's probably sufficient. Um, you know, ha make sure that the scenario has some way for either side to win. And winning does not have to mean necessarily that the other side loses. Um, because we... You know, we, we may not have the same objectives. You know, my, you know, the, one of the downsides of kind of tournament gaming is that it, you know, you've got to, you've got to get past, uh, you know, just kill everybody. And maybe, maybe that works, maybe it doesn't, but either way, it needs to, there needs to be a way for either side to win. Um, they don't have to have equal forces. They don't have to have exactly the same forces or anything like that. They just need to have an equal opportunity to succeed in their objectives, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, I, and sometimes even it could be something as simple as the uh, tabletop teasers. Um, Nick and Rich from Two Fat Lardies, hi guys, they posted a what a tanker tabletop teaser recently where it was just you know there's a little bit of a map and showed the initial disposition of i think it was a panther and uh two shermans you know what do you do i think that'd be a great thing i think that'd be a great way to go ahead and start a game like that i think that'd be a lot of fun so and there wasn't a whole lot to it um so something something to consider uh, what is the bare minimum for a table-ready paint job, in your opinion? I'm not huge on painting. Uh, to borrow from the bard, the play's the thing. Uh, to me, the gameplay is more important than the figures in the set dressing. I'm not saying they're not important. I'm just saying they're not as important as the gameplay. Um, you know, I've I've had great games with unpainted miniatures. I've had terrible games with beautifully painted miniatures. So, that being said, um, you know, th three colors and some basing. That's really all it takes. I I'm not real picky. Uh, I'm a firm believer in the three-foot rule, or even further, depending. Uh, I'm almost... I would rather see effort spent on terrain. I've mentioned before on the show how I'm a big fan of the entire tableau. You know the entire setting of the game, um, and I, I would dare say I would rather spend time. And I, I mean, there's there's nothing, there, there's nothing wrong with taking time on on your miniatures. I I could certainly stand to spend more time on them. I just think that train is, I think your time is better spent working on your train than it is on the figures because the terrain swallows and envelops the figures. Um, so something to consider. So yeah, three colors, some bait, some competent basing, 
And as folks in other podcasts and on blog posts have said, you know, a decent basing can save a mediocre figure. So, something to consider. Legendor- <laughs> Legendary Noise Machine via Facebook says, or maybe it was on Twitter. I don't know. Anyway, Legendary Noise Machine uh, tells me, what do you think would be other good periods for the CNC system? He says, personally, Pike and Shot are early 19th century. Um, you know, that's that's interesting. Um, I think that the commands and color system, and I know it's got its detractors, I'm a big fan of it simply because I can play a game quickly and effectively and have a hell of a lot of fun doing it. Um, I, as I've mentioned in the past before, my buddy Eric and I, um, I used to work an evening shift. And Friday night, we would meet at our friendly local game store in Springfield. And uh, they stayed open late on Friday and Saturday night for gaming. I'd get off at 10. He would meet me at the game store at 10, 15. Uh, we would have, we would set up, play a scenario twice. You know, each, you know, each of us playing both sides. Tear down and talk. And I'd be driving, I'd be driving home by midnight. So there's not a lot of games you can do that with, and, and Commands and Colors really fits the bill for that. Um, we primarily, well, yeah, we almost exclusively played Ancients. I want to say maybe we played the um, Game of Thrones version that uh, Fantasy Flight had at one point. But uh, yeah, the CNC system is great. I love it. I, I think that the the command cards represent a couple of different things that are abstracted. One is local commanders taking initiative when necessary. Um, the other thing that those cards might represent is the overall commander noticing opportunities and being able to effectively communicate those opportunities to his subordinates. So if we take a look at it in that fashion, I'm thinking that... Those periods where communications communications were not necessarily instantaneous. So, like LNM here says, uh, Pike and Shot are early 19th century. Absolutely. I think any pre-long-distance communications system. Uh, so, ACW works. World War One does to a certain degree. I haven't played Memoir 44, so I can't say how effective it is at um, playing, uh, doing a World War II game. But then again, it might be one of those situations where even with instantaneous communications, you still have, you know, you still have miscommunication. I mean, how many times do we find ourselves miscommunicating via, you know, instant messenger or email or what have you? So, um, yeah, I, I think that Ancients it definitely works, Napoleonics I think it works, and just about anything in between. I think you've got to be at a certain tactical level for it to work. Um, I know in the rules it says that... I know in the rules it says that the, the blocks could be any size uh, unit. Um, yeah, take that. take that for what it's worth. You know, I just love the, I just love the system. 
He's, he also says, what period would you like to see next for Commands and Colors? Well, I'd love to see Red Alert. Uh, <laughs> spaceship Combat. Um, oddly enough, I, I think that's going to work because, you know, whatever PSB you want to throw on top of it, you know, Long Distance Communications. Long Distance Communications, if you get far enough away from one another, um, it's going to take some time. You know, in theory, your communications are limited to the speed of light, depending on your background. So, yeah, if you're in a solar system, you know, your communications are going to take minutes or even hours, depending on how far away you are from one another. So, uh, I'm, lo I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, I, you know, I, I bought the, the basic set with the add-ons, or not the add-ons, but the stretch goals um, when Plastic Soldier Company had the red alert kickstarter last year it's supposed to be getting delivered in march so you know keep an eye out on that i've got big plans for that box set when it comes in um i am ready for the sengoku area version from gmt i'm looking forward to medieval i, I do want to get medieval but i'm kind of disappointed that it's byzantines and persians that's a little I'd like to see uh, more of a Renaissance, high medieval, you know, hundred years war type thing. I guess uh, Battle Lore, um, the first edition of Battle Lore covers down on that, but um, I, I like my blocks, I like the way GMT does them. Um, you know, of course, you know, I, I like converting them to miniatures too, so... <laughs> You know, it's it's one of those things where I I just love the game so much. It's so easy to teach people. You know, again, my dream project is is the Commands and Colors Fantasy, where when it's all said and done, it's going to be a thirteen and a half foot long table, and it's going to have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of twenty eight millimeter figures. And again, I'm I'm slowly working on that, but it is it's it's coming along. Did Dave ever do a project for Judge Dredd with Rogue Stars? That's, of course, we're talking about Dave Tubbs, the other half of, well, now the other third, one of the other thirds of Top Faves with Dave and Nick, the Cajun Counselor, the Louisiana Lawyer. Um, we had talked about doing, you know, we had talked about doing different sci-fi movies, um in games. I don't think Dave ever did a project with Judge Dredd, and I'm not sure he even picked up Rogue Stars, so... Um, Dave and his wife just had a little baby, so I didn't feel the need to bother him with, with a question. Um, I'll keep it in the back of my head next time we have him on, because um, I have seen... I've been with Dave in, the, in a sleep-deprived state. He came up to Springfield all the way from Baton Rouge for a uh, for CJ3. Uh, it was two years ago. Yeah, two years ago when we were in the hotel. And it was a mad dash for him, up 55, uh, sleeping for a couple hours outside Memphis and then coming up the rest of the way. So I can imagine that having a newborn baby in the house, the sleep deprivation is going to be back so that might be a, a fun time to record with them but uh 
I'll I'll keep in touch with Dave and we'll see how things are going and maybe we'll have him and Nick on again in the near future and and I'll and I'll ask if he got his hooks into Rogue Stars at all. Do you have a project where you're still not sure what rules you're going to use for it? Um, that's a great question. Um, my ongoing project, sci-fi, Janus Station. I kind of go back and forth with the different rules I'm going to use. I want to do some kind of a jet bike thing, jet bike racing. I was thinking about using Gaslands. Um, that's a real strong contender. Um, I'm wanting to do some robot combat, kind of a gladiatorial thing where people are betting, betting their hard-earned credits back and forth. And would probably, I would really like to do a variant of or a modification of what a tanker for that, because I think it'd be hilarious to have a, a <laughs> gladiator robot standing there in the middle of standing there in the middle of the arena and not doing anything because all it's do, getting is reload dice. <laughs> So, you know, I, I, I've got my projects that I've, that I want to do this year. Um, it's commands and colors fantasy. I want to keep making progress on that. Uh, gangs of Rome. Uh, I know that was a project I wanted to do last year. Um, I'm full bore on, on it now. Um, the, uh, red alert that I just mentioned, I, I am intending on fully painting my, uh, the ship models that come with that. I'm not going to get bit, get real intricate with them but uh, trying to think of any things that are like a, a dream project um, you know it's I like I like to keep it simple just simply because of the the style of gaming that I get to do is infrequent and I gotta travel long distances um, there's two events three events that I can count on being able to go well two that I can count on being able to go to with a third or fourth convention style thing that is just once in a while. So I don't know. Um, so I guess the answer to that question is no, I, I, there's nothing that's currently on a back burner or anything that I'm up in the arms about or up in the air about on rules. Cause I can always find something, right? Okay. What figure, figure line or train item are you hoping someone will make one day? I eat a Holy grail for me. Um, it is, U.S. Army Infantry for the Pacific. Uh, I know that there are similarities between the... There are similarities between the uh, uh, Army and Marines uh, in the Pacific in World War II, but there are some differences. Um, it would be one of those things where if I were to do it, I would want a platoon in a box. So, of course, there's going to be some organizational differences as well. But that's... That is my probably 15 mil. Uh, that's going to mitigate the differences even further. But that is that is my dream uh, dream figure line. Uh, I guess it would be Japanese to to go against them, but I would want two versions of both. My brother and I f talked about figuring out a way to yeah, I mean just simply bankrolling a a sculptor to to make it happen in 15 mil two versions basically fresh off the boat and weeks or months into combat you know so for every clean figure you've got one that's you know maybe he's missing a sleeve or you know one of the pant legs is shredded or is just you know jungle rot set in so you know all sorts of nastiness is going on with the uniform 
their equipment, or maybe they even have foreign equipment, uh, you know, something that somebody picked up along the way, that sort of thing. So there, there are, there's, so yeah, that's, that's what I, that's what I would like to have. Uh, that's the one thing. <laughs> I'm sure there's other stuff I could think of, but that's, that's the one thing I would want for sure. Pear Broden uh, asked via Twitter. Of course, Pear hosts the, or has the phenomenal blog, Roll the One, so his Twitter handle is at Rolly One. Uh, what are your highlights of doing the podcast? It's the people. It's the folks that I get to talk to thanks to simply interviewing them and then the feedback I get on Twitter and Facebook. Uh uh, from folks that listen, that that's really the highlight. Um, you know, it, it's it's gotten me to take a look at my hobby in a different way, and I think I'm I I genuinely think I'm doing things in wargaming that I wouldn't have otherwise, simply because I've I've been introduced to a wider spectrum of interests and perspectives. By, simply by interacting with people or a, a greater group of people. So I, I hope that's answering the question pair, but if, if not, let me know and I'll, I'll try to answer it in a different way. Uh, he also asked, what did you wish you knew before you started podcasting? Um, I, I guess, I guess I wish I knew a little bit more about the technical aspect, just simply hosting and that sort of thing. I, I basically got started off of a single article that was on, I don't even remember the website it was on. It was just basically how to get started in podcasting. And, you know, it pointed me to SoundCloud and a couple other, this is where I host now, but uh, a couple other resources like Audacity for for recording and editing, but, um, yeah, I, I, at this point, it's almost, you know, I started this thing two and a half years ago, and I almost don't remember getting started, I just remember thinking, yeah, this is something I'd like to do, I should probably do it, and then next thing I knew, I was thinking of a name, and making sure that it was available on Twitter, and in various other places, and next thing I knew, I had episode one out, and off I went. What is your next wargaming project? Um, I've talked about it. I've talked, you know, the, the Commands and Colors fantasy is ongoing, so maybe that's not my next wargaming project. Um, as of recording, I played a, a pretty fun game of Gangs of Rome last night, and I'm I liked it way more than I thought I would, and I definitely <laughs> like it more than I should. Uh, so I'm, I've been looking very closely at stuff for Gangs of Rome. I really want to get, I want to get some models for to represent the mobs. Uh, and I've and I've talked about uh, playing Gangs of Rome before. I just hadn't played it yet, and and here we are. I've, I've played it now, and it's a lot of fun. And definitely want to get into that more. Fraser McConaughey, uh, Fraser Mac on Twitter says, "Which period of history or military operation do you want to wargame?" Um, all of them. 
Um, I'm, I presume he's asking that I don't already wargame. Um, I guess to a certain degree, Napoleonics, um, to, to one degree or another. I, I would I would legitimately like to get into late medieval Renaissance, you know, the Italian wars. Uh, this, you know, the the. The very first inkling of widespread use of gunpowder fascinates me, and how and how that changed things. Uh, the rise of standing state armies uh, later on in that period. I I did some of my work in college on that period with uh, a real close look at the wars of religion and the rise. Like I said, the rise of this of uh, state-sponsored standing armies. Um, I think that's a real fascinating period. Um, the pageantry and color is just as diverse and vibrant in that era, in that era as it is in the Napoleonic era. So that, that would definitely be something. I, I have, I mentioned earlier in this episode, uh, wargaming, uh, the Philippines, late 44, early 45. So that's definitely, definitely on there also. Gary Strombo asked me via email, you are the veteran wargamer. Does that affect your decisions on the game table when it comes to casualties? In, in quotation marks. Are you more or less likely to avoid them or does it not matter since it is a game? You know, for the most part, I thought it didn't matter because it is just a game. Um, and to a certain degree, that's, that's still the case. As I mentioned in my most recent episode with the Lardies, talking about the Kriegspiel, along with Simon and with Mark, um, it was it was a lot different, for and I don't know exactly why. I, I think a big part of it was the planning period uh, prior to the game. I think I had more invested in it, and, and above and beyond just simply painting figures. But the planning process that went into it and hoping for success, uh, you know, gambling on success really with a much, much, re or a greatly reduced force structure than I thought I was going to have on the in the game. So, you know, I, I guess I'll have to think about it a little bit more. Um, you know, that's that's a great question, and I think that if we were to get into more campaign gaming, that would change things. Um, especially in a campaign game, uh, in particular one that maybe tracked casualties a little bit more closely. So, yeah, that's that'd be that'd be a good place to start, I think. He also asks, "You seem to love rules and playing several types of games. Have you dipped your finger into writing some?" I have. Um, I I get an idea and I pursue it for a little bit and then I move on to something else, or I forget it, or something else catches my eye. I, I'm a terrible magpie, uh, gaming butterfly, whatever term you want to use. And I, <laughs> my, my, uh, my Google Drive is littered with various war game rules and various states of completion in various genres and eras, fantasy, science fiction modern, you know, uh, micro-armor, skirmish, platoon-based, it's, it's a mess. I, I mean, there's some good ideas in there, and I just need to 
get back at it and I can, you know, take a look at them, pick, pick through there, see if there's anything that's worth, uh, getting back to and, uh, and go from there to a certain degree. I'm, I'm kind of writing the fantasy addenda to commands and colors also, um, you know, home rules certainly count. I've certainly done plenty of that, just like anybody else has. His, uh, Gary's final question is, speaking of rules, is there a certain game mechanism that you really like? Um, I really like the opposed role system in Stargrunt. Uh, I like that the troop... Well, it's not just an opposed... Uh, opposed roles aren't anything new. Um, I like that the relative quality of the troops involved means different dice. So, a really, so for example, a really good unit might be rolling a D10 or even a D12, while a really crappy unit is going to be rolling a D6 or a D4. And there, you still have a chance of of being the the bearer of the crappy unit and taking out the uh, the more heavily skilled unit but eh, probably not going to happen uh, and then he also asks one that I loathe um, I don't really loathe a mechanism so much um, I'm not a huge fan of using just D6's um, I, I think that you know it if I had my, well, that's not to say if I had my way, everything would be D10s, because that's not quite the case, but I would like to see games use the D10 more, because I think there's some, there's some fun things you can do with it, but, um, I don't really loathe any mechanisms, per se, that I can think of. Um, I, the, the game, the game design philosophy, however, that I loathe is, where the where the game is predicated on picking just the right combination of troops and special equipment and other nifty stuff so that as soon as you put your figures on a table it's pretty much a foregone conclusion of who's going to win and who's going to lose um that's what i really don't like um and it's not necessarily a particular mechanism and it's not necessarily one particular game there are quite a few games that do that it's just not. It's just not for me. Like I said, you know, either side needs to have an even chance of winning or succeeding in their in their objectives, and and I guess that's what it comes down to. Okay, moving on. Simon Tonkus uh, on Twitter is at Goat Major. Um, he asks, uh, "Can you tell us more about your imagine imagine Napoleonic project and what are your plans for it?" It's kind of up in the air at the moment. I can tell you that I've got a somewhat of border tension uh, coming from a um, a monarchy on the east that's vaguely German, a newfound republic in the west that's vaguely French, and some vaguely Dutch people in the middle that are going to find their country getting overrun from both sides. Um, Henry Hyde has agreed to, to take part in it, and I think for the most part we're going to be just playing games with Commands and Colors Napoleonics because we both have it. And uh, actually I think uh, 
uh, Benito over in over in Spain might be participating as well now and again. A buddy of mine, a part, uh, one of the core members of my uh, J3 group, might be participating as well. So we'll see how that goes. There, I haven't done a whole lot with it yet. Um, basically, it involves mostly uh, doing some storytelling with a map and a couple of copies of Commands of Colors Napoleonics. Uh, Simon also says, It seems to me as an observer that the board game hobby seems much more innovative than the miniatures hobby. As you and Chris play a lot of different board games, That what mechanisms from board gaming do you think could be adapted or exploited in miniatures rules? That's a great question. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit more about the line between board games and miniatures games with the uh, Meeple's guys with uh, Neil Shuck and Mike Hobbs in a future episode. So um, I'll, I'll be delving into this in a lot more detail, hopefully before too long. But as far as stuff that comes from a board game, um, I don't know. I, I'm not sure that the innovations in board games would necessarily translate into a miniatures game until you get into things more like 40k and the, those types of games. Because um, it seems to me that 40k has been taking uh, some, some cues, not so much from board games, but from... Uh, card games with setting up the meta and finding those synergies between different elements so that you get a killer combination. Um, I, I'm i not going to say if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I, I, I think it's self-evident <laughs> in that I, I don't have uh, much of a hankering to play 40k. So, I don't know. I'll have to, I'll have to come back to that. Um, I think, th you know, there's some interesting things that that could maybe be done with time um, as far as like when things can be initiated and then executed if that makes sense um, there are a couple of really neat board games that I like that use that use time trackers um, so that might be an option to pursue uh, Actually, again, I'm going to go back to Stargrunt. Stargrunt did have a time tracker of sorts with... You would call in possibly an airstrike or a medevac airlift um, on one turn, and then you would track you know, the, the course of that aircraft before it gets to the, before it gets to the table on, on kind of a time track thing. So that, you know, maybe that could be explored a little bit more, you know? Um... I think there's, I think there's some there's some opportunity there because, well, just simply there are more people out there that are devising board games, and get them published than there are miniatures war games, and you know maybe there's maybe there's something there to take a look at and, and going from there. I mean, te well, technically speaking, if if you if you want to look at it this way, Commands and Colors is definitely a board game with miniature game elements, and I really like the the color dice. The the well, it's the color system. You know, it's got your combat resolution and your morale 
all built into one dice roll. And I really like that. It's it's smooth, it's elegant. Um, you know, if you're in the right frame of mind, it makes perfect sense. Uh, yeah, there you go. Commands and Colors, my answer <laughs> once again for everything. He says we are starting to see the emergence of cooperative games, the zombie stuff, Rangers of Shadow Deep, etc. Do you think this is a trend that we will and or should see more of in other genres? Absolutely. I would love to see it. Um, you know, and that also opens up, you know, if you've got these cooperative games and the antagonists or enemy, how, whatever term you want to use, is running off of some type of algorithm or AI or flowchart, whatever term you want to use, that immediately opens things up for solo gaming, which is something that I would like to do more of simply because I don't get to get with other people in game as much as I would like. So, um, yeah, I'd love to see more of it. And I think we should see more of it because it goes hand in hand with, you know, more of that innovation. And, and I wonder, I wonder if we might be better served, um, as a hobby and getting some, you know, casting a wider net and getting some folks to come over from board games you know, that's something to consider. Speaking of uh, <laughs> commands and colors again, what is it about Battle Lord that isn't right for your fantasy project? There's a couple different things. One of the guiding principles for this project is that I have to be able to take, I have to be able to take it to a gaming convention and play it with people who have possibly never played a miniatures game or a board game, because I'm looking straight at Recruits, and Recruits does have a number of attendees that have not played hobby-type games before. So with that in mind, I'm trying to keep it as simple and streamlined as possible. Battle lore, with its special rules for every unit and nifty skills and abilities that get triggered with certain dice results, that's, that's not a good fit in that... In, in that regard, it's almost like it becomes a, it's almost like it becomes a second, uh, a second mini game, if you will. So that's that's just not, that doesn't work. Additionally, they've got all sorts of crazy unit types that aren't typical fantasy tropes. And again, and I, I've talked about this before, where if you're at a convention game and you're doing something, it, you almost have to have easily identifiable factions. You know, the you know, in I mentioned this in an, on a blog post talking about my Star Trek full thrust game. Okay, you look at it you look at a Star Trek game, you know that the Federation are the quote unquote good guys, you know that the Klingons or the Romulans are the quote unquote bad guys. It doesn't take a lot of getting into, okay? If you're in the United States, you know that the that the Continentals are the good guys and the British are the bad guys. You know, you know that the Americans are the good guys and the Japanese or the Germans are the bad guys. You don't have to explain it. With battle lore and the IP there, it just doesn't it doesn't work. And I figure if I'm gonna be changing names and whatnot anyway, you, I might as well just start from whole cloth and you know you know that the undead are the bad guys you know that the rat men are the bad guys you know that the humans and dwarves and elves are the good guys and it doesn't take much explanation so that's another thing 
Plus, my my eventual goal is a full-on epic version, eight-player game, four players per side, 13-and-a-half-foot table, and Battlelord does not have an epic version like Ancients does. And there's something about playing the epic version of Commands and Colors Ancients with the rule where the overall commander-in-chief can't can only talk to one of his subordinate commanders per turn. I really like that, and it's a little tougher to enforce in a in a uh, convention game, but it's still it's still worth doing. And to a certain degree, J three is a is a game convention because I I do have attendees that are not hardcore hobby gamers, and I have to you know I like to keep the games relatively simple for them too. So. I hope that answers the question, and of course, I'll, I'll <laughs> once again, I will link to the blog post where I, where I say, yes, I know about Battle War, but I'm not going to use it because, so hopefully that'll clear things up. Okay, so, <laughs> um, Simon and I are both fra- fans of a British TV show called Toast of London. Uh, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It's on whatever channel it's on in Britain. It's on Netflix in the United States. And uh, there's an episode where Toast, Stephen Toast, played by Matt Barry in the show, is, uh, he's a actor whose career is going down the tubes and he's doing voiceover work. <laughs> Simon has asked me to, to uh, do an impersonation of one of those one of those jobs he has, so here <laughs> here we go. Launch the nuclear weapons! Launch the nuclear weapons! Okay, so that's... <laughs> Launch the nuclear weapons in, in my best toast voice for Simon. Okay. Alright, Joel Franklin uh, asked via Facebook. Now, you gotta know something about Joel. Uh, I Joel and I both used to work for Gateway, the the Cowbox computer people. And he was one of my trainers when I first, when I was first hired by, by Gateway 2000 was the name of the company, the company then. So Joel and I have known each other for some time. Joel is part of the J3 crew. Um, and he asks, what is your favorite game and why does it have command in its title? <laughs> Alluding to either commands and colors of any stripe and chain of command, I would think. Um, well, I, I guess I would have to say, uh, my favorite World War II platoon skirmish game is indeed Chain of Command, and I guess it has that in its title, it has the word command in its title because that's what, uh, Richard Clark and Nick Skinner decided is a good representation of the game, because that's what it's about, it's about being the guy in charge and making stuff, making stuff work up and down the chain of command. And if we're talking about commands and colors, again, I would guess that that's because Richard Borg decided that command is a big part of the, is a big part of the game. So I guess that's, or specifically, if you want me to say why those games are my favorites, um, uh, chain of command just, it, it does it does it right. It's a game that I want to play more of because I, I feel like I'm not quite doing it right and I don't get an opportunity to play it enough. 
to really suss out some of the really good things that I know are hidden in that game. So I definitely want to do more of that. Um, you know, I don't need to go on and on and on about commands and colors because I'm sure anybody listening to this in I've not taken an inventory of every single instance of me mentioning commands and colors in this podcast series, but after 50 episodes, I would, eh, pretty good odds I've mentioned it in, in, in at least half the episodes, I would bet. But anyway. Okay, Barnaby Orr via Facebook asks, uh, tell us about the local show scene and the local hobby as a whole. How do you feel it is compared to other areas you've lived and you think it's better now than it's been in the past. Um, I'm going to take this backwards. Yes, it is better now than it's been in the past. Uh, local show scene. Um, there is a group here in Pike County that does mainly magic and a little bit of board gaming and a little bit. And they did some 40K for a while. Or a splinter group did some 40K for a while. And they have kind of a like a game day once a once a quarter or so, uh, or biannual, and and I just haven't had an opportunity to get to those. I, I went once, um, and I'd like to get to more of them just simply to, you know, share my portion of the hobby. And that's just in Pike County here. There's there's a couple of things that go on up in Hannibal. Um, in particular, I'm thinking about a steampunk uh, convention expo. Uh, whatever you want to call it, that they do have a a board and wargaming aspect uh, to it. They're up in Quincy, Illinois. There's a couple of game conventions that happen on roughly a six-month basis. Down in St. Louis, there's there's quite a bit of stuff going on in St. Louis. I just don't get a chance to get down to it. Um, same with over in Springfield. You know, I'm talking, you know, all this stuff I'm talking about is within a two-hour drive. I just... It never fails. Anything that I want to do on a weekend, you know, anything that I'm really interested in doing, it always happens on a damn drill weekend. And here I am with 22 years in. I could drop my retirement packet tomorrow. And I'm, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to quit the National Guard just so I can go to more gaming conventions, but it's, it's an option. <laughs> so local hobby as a whole i think i touched on that there is over in bowling green missouri which is about a 30 minute drive for me there is a, a shop and they do magic cards and Yu-Gi-Oh and that sort of thing and they've got a little bit of a they've got a little bit of a games workshop presence i would like to do more over there um my brother chris and i took what a tanker there and we got a couple guys to take a look at least for a couple minutes anyway so there's that we've taken what a tanker to uh, game store over in Springfield as well, and we actually got a couple people to, to jump in and play, so there there's something to it. Um, we, we both talked about gaming more and uh, more regularly. Uh, we've actually played quite a bit in the last three weekends. Um, actually, we played something in the last three weekends, so we're definitely getting more serious about that. Um, and with our our newfound interest in Gangs of Rome, you can count on that happening for sure. So, And with uh, a U.S. distributor for War Banner now, um, that's I think we might need to be more serious about promoting that game in particular and helping uh, Tim and 
the uh, War Banner guys out with that. So I don't know. We'll see. My own brother says, "Grain of the hobby is it a thing? If so, how to turn the tide? How to turn the tide, as it were? Get out there and play the types of games that you want to see played. That's I think that's a big part of it. Get out there, play the games that you want to see played." Get them in front of a younger crowd. Get them in front of people who think that historical gaming is boring. People out there who think, you know, show them and it's not that it's not boring. And it is compelling. And it is fun. And it is, you know, a visual feast. And put your best foot forward. And get people playing those games. Because when you get people playing the games... They, they realize that, oh, historical gaming isn't boring. It isn't just setting stuff up and looking at it at the table for three hours and then tearing it down. You know, there, there's more to it than that. And I, and I think that that would be, that would go a long way, a long, long way to um, getting folks interested. And, you know, it's, yeah, there, you know, historical gaming does take a little bit more work than fantasy or sci-fi where everything's provided for you in one you know one nifty box and yes i guess there are some companies that are trying to do the one box approach but you know what i i think there's more there's more to be had in the hobby than just the one box approach stuff and i i i really i really think that you know if if we want historical wargaming to prosper then we got to help it along so there it is. Okay, Basement Games via Twitter asks, First question, Jay, deals with your military service. Did you ever parachute jump in the winter? I ask, him, I ask as I am reading that Hitler wanted to launch the invasion of France right after Poland. Had to be hard on the FJ. Is there any special training for winter jumps? I have jumped in the winter. Um, I don't know what regulations state now, but when you back when I was jumping... You had to jump once every three months to maintain your jump status and to maintain your jump pay. So, you know, not necessarily rain or shine, but definitely in the winter months we would jump also. And it doesn't get particularly cold in North Carolina. I mean, it gets, yeah, it gets chilly. It gets down in the 30s. It might get into the 20s, um, but it wasn't ever really bad. In, oh crap, I mean, it was 24 years ago. In... January and February, and just barely into March of 1995, uh, we went to Germany for two months, and we ended up jumping with the German unit. We had we had been planning on doing three jumps in one day with this German unit, you know, out of a German airfield with the German unit with German shoots with German jump masters out of German aircraft on the German DZs. It couldn't get more German. And it was cold. Man, it was cold that day. And I'm, I'm talking seriously cold. Um, you know, the ground was frozen solid. Uh, it was so cold that they couldn't start the aircraft that morning. Uh, we had to delay. <laughs> they had to delay our first jump to the point where instead of getting three jumps in, we only got two jumps in that day because there simply wasn't enough time to, to do it due to the delays. Um, and here's the thing, at least at the time, you couldn't wear gloves. Uh, you couldn't wear gloves because they were too bulky and you couldn't take the risk, um, because to pull your reserve, you have to have uh, relatively slender fingers, um, 
but you can special rig, or you can rig a reserve parachute with the ripcord handle basically pointing out so that you can put a gloved hand on it, but riggers are loath to do it because it's a bunch of additional work that they shouldn't have to do otherwise, so they just make you jump without your gloves. And um, denser air, um, you fall <laughs> you fall faster. Um, it's... Uh, I, I hit hard. Those jumps hurt. You know, and, and keep in mind, I was a 20-year-old PFC at the time, and not much hurt me. But man, those jumps really hurt. Um, as for special training for winter jumps, not really. Just, you know, be real careful of water features on the DZ, even more so than you normally would, I guess is about it. Um... Okay, and he says, second question, gaming and history seem to be more accepted in the UK. What would it take to make such a turn around here in the US? That's a great question. Um, gaming in particular, you know, if, if for gaming to be more uh, more accepted, I think, I think we might just have to have more news stories, positive news stories about it, like I've seen with GW in the UK. Um, I did see there was a news story, you know, about the the GW distribution center of Memphis, Tennessee getting expanded. So, you know, maybe people will take it a little bit more seriously. I think um, more positive coverage of events like recruits at Lee Summit High School where it's showing, you know, showing kids, you know, having a good time with these types of games and illustrating the advantages that can be gained from, from playing those types of games or these types of games. You know, maybe maybe that's a possibility, uh, something that's worth looking into. So, um, okay, Benito uh, says, can you provide recommended reading materials on how to organize and implement Kriegspiel type games, books or articles? Well, you know, um, Lard Magazine 2018 talks about using Discord with with the Kriegspiel, so that's that's a possibility. Um, I need to look into it a little bit more. There's, I'm sure there's some, uh, I'm sure there's some more detail to be had on that in Henry Hyde's upcoming book on campaigns. So keep an eye out for that. That should be out somewhere around Christmas time, I guess. Uh, let's see what else. Um, nothing's really springing to mind. Uh, Nick Skinner would be the guy to ask on this. And so Nick, if you're listening, uh, help us answer Benito's question uh, on that. So, And then Benito was one of the blue players in the most recent uh, Kriegspiel via Discord that uh, Nick Skinner and Richard Clark ran. He asks, uh, what system is used in the Kriegspiel games to resolve fights in the actual battle? I asked Nick what he used, and he said it was just a slightly modified version of Von Reiswitz's rules. And something that's really interesting about that is the... Uh, the the von Reiswitz rules have special dice that have the combat results printed on them, and it's not just a single result. I mean, no, no, you've got a variety of different factors that go into not only which dice you use, but also which line on the dice that you read. So, 
luckily, in the 1824 von Reiswitz rules that Too Fat Lardy's put out, they've got it broken down into a more manageable combat results table. So we got that going for us, which is nice. Um, so yeah, just right out of von Reiswitz, slightly modified for a vaguely World War II setting. Uh, final question is from Nick Skinner himself. That's at Dozy Bugger on on the Twitter. Um, most UK gamers of a certain age came into historical wargaming through an exposure to airfix models and toy soldiers. Is there a similarly common theme for US gamers? I think that's the case. Um, I think there's a greater preponderance in that age group, and I'm talking the probably uh, at this point late for late 40s to late 50s guys um there'll be a greater preponderance of the avalon hill and spi uh hex encounter war games in there um i know that once you get down closer to my age um mid 40s uh you're gonna see more red box D, &D. you're gonna see more games workshop enter into the scene uh, whether they're a fantasy and sci-fi gamer or historical gamer now. But for the guys that are anywhere from 6 to 12 years older than me, I, I think it's the Airfix or similar uh, with, a, with a, a, a greater, like I said, a greater preponderance of the... Uh, greater preponderance of the SPI and Avalon Hill type uh, war games. So... Whew. Well, that brings us to the end of the 34 or 5 or so questions, because a couple got added on um, after I initially compiled my list. So, um, I hope I, I answered your questions to the best of my ability, and I hope that uh, things make sense. Um, if, you, if you did get... If you did ask a question and you don't think I quite answered it, or... You want some clarification on something? You know, feel free to to mention it on Twitter or Facebook or just email me or direct message, what have you. Uh, I really enjoyed this. I, I'm glad I'm uh, I'm glad I was able to uh, illuminate uh, some of your you know some of your wonderment. Or I'm glad I was able to talk a little bit more about some of the things that I've been into recently. Um, I really love this hobby. Um, I really love the the people that I've been able to interact with. Uh, being able to interact with you, fellow gamers, has really, really been a highlight. Like I said, uh, it's it's really great. I really enjoy the hobby in all aspects of it. I, I can't imagine. I genuinely can't imagine what my life would be like if I didn't have this to think about and I didn't have the games to look forward to and the hobby aspect and that sort of thing. So um, if I could snap my fingers and make, uh, make these episodes come out faster, I would. Uh, editing is, is quite a chore. I, I, try to, I try to spend as much of my kids waking hours as I can with them. So, you know, all this editing, most of my hobby time is done after they go to bed. And it's usually not a lot of time left over after that. So, uh, it's, it's worth it. It's time that's well spent. 
and I, I wish I just had more of it. So, um, I do genuinely enjoy putting the podcast together. I do genuinely enjoy getting the feedback from you, the listener, uh, as I mentioned earlier. And I, and I can only hope that I've got another 50 episodes in me. Um, we'll see. I don't know. Uh, maybe only have five more episodes. I don't know. I, I've still, I think I've got a lot to say, but I'm more interested in hearing what you have to say, um, to be honest with you, because I can only say commands and colors so many times <laughs> before people are going to just delete me from their subscription list. So, like I said, I hope, I hope that answers the question. So, you know, maybe I'll do another one of these more, uh, you know, maybe not my 100th episode, maybe my, maybe my 75th episode I'll do another one of these. Or, you know, maybe if someone has a question, or maybe, you know, hey, if you've got a question, shoot it out and I'll do what I can to answer it on the next episode. Or maybe do a blog post or something like that. Blog posts, to me, blog posts just take more time and effort because I, I really, it, it, it may not sound like it when I'm talking, but I really do care about how I say things when I write. And sometimes it means that what I write takes a long time to do because I, I want it to be just right. But So, more questions. I'm all for it. I'd love to meet some of you folks sometime at a gaming convention or game store or whatnot. So, uh, I'll try to be a little bit more uh, forthcoming about when and where I'll be out in public. So, maybe you can connect at some point. So... Anyway, um, definitely looking forward to going to recruits um, this fall. Exactly what the dates for recruits are, they haven't announced yet, so but we'll just have to see. Oh, definitely going to take a game. I I would like to. I'd like to take what a tanker back. Maybe not run three sessions, but definitely try to do one session of that. And I suspect we'll be tanking Gangs of Rome also. And, uh, you know, we'll see. But anyhow, on that note, a big thank you to everyone who asked questions. A big thank you to everyone who takes the time to listen to my show. I really appreciate it. I know I can ramble sometimes, so I'm going to try to wrap this up here relatively quickly. Um, I am continually amazed and humbled and flabbergasted that people still want to hear me talk about gaming in Commands and Colors in particular. Okay, last reference, I promise. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, seriously, though, I am I am humbled that you would still want to listen to me and uh, keep engaging me on Twitter and on Facebook and keep downloading and telling your friends and, and all the rest. So so thank you. It's, it's because of you, the listener, that I am still still making this. So, on that note, real quick, I had one last submission that came in after I recorded this episode, but before I edited it, so I am going to go ahead and include it. It comes from David Pike via Facebook, and David asks, thinking about system manufacturers, companies making figures, rules, scenery, dice, even paint like Flames of War, Battlefront, or Bolt Action Warlord. Do you think these help or hinder the development of the hobby? I can see pros and cons on both sides. David, that's a great question, and I can see pros and cons as well. Um, I think when it comes down to it, I think the Flames of War uh, bolt actions 
and to a lesser degree like your black powder also from warlord you know strictly speaking from a historical standpoint uh i think they're good for the hobby overall uh i think they provide either a direct entry point for someone to the hobby that's never seen wargaming before and maybe you know it may have some type of interest in it and definitely it's it's a much easier path to historical wargaming via those systems if someone's already into 40k or uh warhammer or fantasy or other uh or other systems uh so i think I think it's a net benefit. Um, you know, I certainly have, you know, Battlefront Flames of War figures for my Chain of Command <laughs> force. So, you know, there, there's not a problem there. I like that when you buy a platoon, it's a platoon. You know, for example, you know, the unfortunately, one of the examples of a, not a barrier to entry per se, but definitely a hindrance to easy entry would be, you know, your old glory 15s, where, hey, I want some Panzer Shreks. Great, here's a bag of 50 Panzer Shrek figures. You know, it's it's a bit much to ask someone to jump into the hobby that way. You know, if, if someone's unsure about the hobby, you know, they can get a starter box, they can kind of dip their toe into it. Maybe they play the game, maybe they don't. Uh... Yeah, I like I said, I just think it's a net benefit. It's it's if it makes it easier for someone to literally put their foot in the door, I'm all for it. Um, you know, one of the things I like about what a tanker is that it's relatively easy to grasp, even for someone who's not a miniatures gamer. Now uh, there are plenty of stories online about gamers introducing their other family members, wives girlfriends, daughters, sons, otherwise significant others, cousins, uncles, aunts, moms, dads, etc. to Ministers of Wargaming with What a Tanker. Now granted, two fat lardies don't make model kits, and that's okay. Um, but I think that it is in Miniature Games Company's best interests to look for ways to introduce people to the greater hobby. And if that means everything needs to be provided in a relatively easy to handle format, then so be it. You know, that that can't be a bad thing. Now, some people are going to say that, you know, it makes it too easy to get into the hobby or, you know, they don't have to do any research. So what? Maybe someone's idea of a good time isn't pouring over a primary source that hasn't been translated from 18th century German. You know, that's okay. You know, I have said many times on this show, it's a big tent. <laughs> you know, Miniatures Wargaming is a big tent. There are a lot of things to entice the potential gamer. And, you know, who are we to say, oh, that's that's not the right way to do it? Not at all. Not at all. Um, I, you know... I like to pick and choose where I do my research. Sometimes I want the easy way out. Sometimes I just want to put figures, or in the case of, well, that one game that I'm not going to mention anymore, wooden blocks on a table or on a board and just go at it, you know? And that's okay. You know, we, we don't all have to spend hours 
researching the proper shade of green for the turnbacks on this one particular unit that only fought in one battle. You know, it, it it's okay. We we all come from this hobby with different expectations, and we suit our you know we scratch that wargaming itch in different ways. You know, and again, I've talked about it on the show many many times. You know, it's this hobby isn't the same thing to everybody, and you know what? That's okay. Some people like to spend their time researching particular uniform details and great for them that's cool some people like to spend it painting intricate detail and doing non-metal metallics and other advanced painting techniques on one figure and spend you know 20 30 40 hours on a single figure great if they're having fun doing it who am i to say that that's not the right way to do it you know and some people some people just slap some figures together don't care about mold lines don't care about you know anything and just put gray plastic or bare metal on the table and you know what that's okay too because at the end of the day it's their hobby and they get to pursue it however they want and i just think that that's a net benefit you know for everybody maybe one day they'll put some paint on those figures maybe they'll sell them on to someone else on the cheap and you know what it's a net benefit for those of us who do want to buy stuff on the cheap that's fine that's okay because, like I've said before, well, even in this answer I've said before, we, we all pursue this hobby in our own ways, and, you know, it, it's, it's not bad. So, finally, on that note, if the wargaming you're having isn't any fun, you make it fun for you. That is all. <laughs> Copyright J. Arnold 2019. Music courtesy of freemusicarchive.com.